When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hi, and welcome to Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hooray! We love hooray. it. Hooray! Hooray, hooray. And what are we doing today, Gary? Well, it's a rather sad occasion, Pete. It's... Uh, it's the final South Knox Hazar podcast. Oh, it's Germany no. and the end. This is the, the end. end. Beautiful, Beautiful friend. friend. This is the end. When I say beautiful friend, I just mean the chum. You mean the listeners, don't you? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Thanks for getting me out of that one, Pete. That's very good of you. So... So where are we? Where are we? Well, we've got to the end of the war in Europe, haven't we? Uh, and it's crucial to remember that V-Day does not mark the end of the Second World War. It marks the end of the war in, with Germany. Uh, the South Dutchesars, uh were given responsibility uh, with, under the military government for the administration of the whole of Coesfeld area in Westphalia, about 55 square miles in total. Can you imagine the responsibility? Uh, the regimental headquarters are at a place called Lette. I've no idea where that is. 425 Battery, they're at Gesher. Uh, and uh, the men Do are. Do you know where a... that is? No. I bet it's near Lette, though. <laughs> <laughs> the men are in a school. The mess is uh, large houses. Uh, and the, the battery office in a factory. 426. 426. 426. 426. 426 Battery. Uh, they're. they're uh, Geographically scattered, as they say. C Trooper in Schloss Romberg in Bulldurn, D Trooper in Dolman. Uh, most of the men, reasonable comfort, reasonable comfort. Um, now, um, so, so let's let's look at what's happening. What's happening in the real world, Gary? What this is not the end of the war, is it? Well, no. As you mentioned, the war with Japan is still ongoing. In fact, it's it's still raging, raging. Um, Raging, and the British forces were were preparing to launch invasions of uh, Malaya and Singapore, whilst the Americans they were slugging their way across the island of Okinawa. Okinawa. So that that must seem a world away. Um, and and, and it, can you imagine how relieved everybody is that they they're not dead? The war's over. And, yeah, they're all going home. Yeah, uh, soon. And then and then Albert Swinton gets a bolt from the blue. Now this is Troop Sergeant Major. 
uh, Albert Swinton, someone we followed through these podcasts right from the start. Uh, 425 Battery, 107th Medium. And you're going to say, what, 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 what sort of a shock did uh, Albert get? I remember it your was a accent. Sunday morning. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'd got the Troop One Church Parade, and I was on the square of this school building. A window opened, and it was Major Birkin. He shouts, Sir Major, I want to see you now. He says, There you go, and presented me with a message from the War Office saying that 912374 W02AH Swinton was posted to the Far East. How do you feel about that? <laughs> anyway, this is BQMS David Tickle of 425 Battery. He, he was amazed at this, and he said this uh, when he heard the news that Albert had been posted. He says this. <clears throat> we were absolutely staggered when Albert announced they'd been posted to the Far East. It was a bit shattering to see a lad like Albert break down and shed a few tears. He said, look, I'm not done enough. How can they post me out to the Far East when I've been through all I've been through? I can't understand it. We were all of the same mind. And, and I, 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 the depression that must have hit him, it must have been, he must have been so pissed off. Uh, he decides to fight it, doesn't he? And, um, but it, how can you fight? How can you fight the army? I mean, you had a bloody good go, didn't you, in your... <laughs> and who won? Who won? Well, the army. Yeah. Uh he, he leaves the unit in utter, utter despair. And it, it's like this old thing. He'd been to the well so often, the, the well of courage. And he, he felt that he, he, not only had he run out of water, but his bucket had a hole in it. Uh, so so, so what, he, tell me what happens, Albert. So his troops aren't made Robert Swinton again. I saw the colonel. I saw the brigadier. I finished up at Army Group Headquarters. All they said was it's come from the war office. I couldn't get this thing stopped, so I eventually finished up back at the Royal Artillery Depot, Woolwich. I was very much anti-army at the time because of the way they treated me. I was very much a bullshit type. I lost all interest in what I was doing. I couldn't care less. They could have put me against a wall and shot me as far as I was concerned. I was really annoyed and felt let down. I went home on my embarkation leave for a fortnight. My stepfather said, I'm going to get in touch with my MP. He got it stopped. And Albert did, in fact, rejoin the unit. But uh, I just thought that was worth including, because for, for just to shock poor old Albert got. Now, uh, what, what, what governs their lives most of all in the first period, you think, Gary? What, what would you well, say... Was- it, I mean, rather interestingly, at the at the start of uh, the, their lives in Germany, there was a strict non-fraternisation rule, which uh, uh, that had been issued by Montgomery back in March 1945. And uh, this was entirely designed to punish all Germans, treating them all equally responsible for the crimes committed by the Nazi that, regime. That's not going to work, is it? We're not with British soldiers. Um, <clears throat> I think, I mean, I talked to a lot of veterans and they always said the thing that, Stuck in their mind <clears throat> was <clears throat> it was the kids. You you can't not talk to a kid. You give them sweets, the rest of it. Although you have to watch it these days, I understand. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you want to pause for a moment, Pete? I'll just, Can I allow you to to, just, to drown in that? Just reflect on what I've just said. <laughs> Carrying on swiftly. Uh, but the, the political climate gradually changes and uh, and it's, 
punishment of all Germans stops being a sort of primary objective. Uh, and there's sort of a move to re-education to creating a new Germany. Uh, and you can't really re-educate people if you won't talk to them. <laughs> and you sort of wander about. <clears throat> so by September, the British administration has abandoned the idea of non-fraternisation. But there was something really serious, and this is a, a dark point of this podcast. Uh, they're going to try and change one aspect of the character of Nazi Germany. The British government was well aware of the horror of the concentration camps, and they got they took film footage of, of Belson and, and the other camps uh, when they were liberated. And uh, Sidney Bernstein was commissioned as producer of a propaganda film. And they always say Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock was involved in editing. I'm not so sure about that. But the idea was to get the maximum emotional impact of, of, of scenes that are pretty graphic, really, aren't they? And uh, the film's ultimately shelved, but some of it's shown, some of the Belson footage was sent to Germany for compulsory viewing by people. And David Elliott, that's six foot six, uh, by this time Captain David Elliott, 45 battery, he says this. <clears throat> I've remembered he was from Surrey. So, therefore, this voice will reflect my opinion of Surrey people. The order came down that this film of Belston Concentration Camp, which had been taken by the Army Film Unit, was to be shown to all the civilian population over 16 years of age. We had a cinema in the village, and it was fairly straightforward to go along and tell the Burgomaster what we wanted. He did protest to start with and said it couldn't be done. And one had to say, of course it could be done. We had an ex... We had an ex... Sorry, we had an ex-inmate. Got my accents mixed up a bit there. We had an, an ex-inmate of a concentration camp. I think he was a German Jew. A very, very gaunt fellow. And most of his teeth had been broken. This chap was on the screen talking about what was being shown on the screen. It affected the Germans very deep. No accents here. No, very deeply indeed. As they came out, there was a mixture. The younger women and girls in tears. The men shaking their heads in disbelief. We had a general impression that they didn't realise it had been going on. I don't think they wanted to know. Sorry, I hadn't realised that was coming up. Teach me to read things ahead, won't it? Um, and uh, and also, by the way, Captain David Elliott was a cracking bloke. He's the one who started the South Dutchess Bridge. He's the one who put the idea forward. A great bloke, great bloke. Uh, there's a cynical view that everyone in Germany denied responsibility for anything to do with the Nazi regime. Once they'd lost the war. I, I've never made my mind up about this. I don't think that's entirely true. But it, it's in between the two, isn't it? Um, Albert Swinton had some sympathy for the, for the village. Albert was such a nice bloke. Uh, I'd surprise you're playing him and not me. We had to round up all the civilian population, push them in this room, and I, right, you watch this. And we showed this film with Belson. It was rather horrendous. This was a very rural area, and I don't think a lot of people knew anything about this. I honestly don't. They came out in tears. It really upset them. I wouldn't have thought it possible for any human being to treat another human being like it. I, I see you went for the accent anyway. <laughs> well, I just thought I've been doing it. I can't stop doing it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So this was one thing going on. Now, there's something else going on, and, and that is uh, the, the, as, 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 as they were in charge, they were responsible for the administration control of the displaced persons and various POW camps. Uh, in, in all, seven camps, varied nationalities, 
there's a there's a problem. What do you think? One of the biggest problems of running a displaced persons camp is. Well, no one spoke uh, the languages. I would imagine. And and everybody in the camps has had hell on earth. And 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 if you've just been treated so badly for years, you've been you've been treated in a manner that's barely human. Uh, do you think you're in a mood to compromise? Or, or no. To... So there is a problem with these displaced persons, which which is a tragic problem for every angle. And you're going to be Captain Bob Folds, another great friend that we've been following throughout these podcasts. Uh, how many were there? There's been about 10 of them. There's more. I don't know. We don't know how many more. Lots of South and South. And this is Captain Bob Folds about the, uh, the camps. D Troop had one camp, Russians and Slavs in this camp. There must have been about 300 of them in a wired-off section of houses alongside the railway track in Dulman. They were a very unlikable lot. We never had any sort of rapport with them, unfortunately. They were very primitive types, big, stolid people who stood round you and just looked blankly at you whenever you went in the compound, and they weren't easy to deal with. They had terrible grudges against the Germans, and they used to go out at night raiding German farms for food, women, and anything else. We finished up in the stupid, ironic position of trying to protect the Germans against the displaced persons. It was sad, but that was how it worked out. And it is sad. And, and uh, I mean, some of those symptoms, just looking blankly, they're, they're symptoms of PTSD, they're symptoms of, uh, of shock. They're sim- they, these people have been treated beyond belief. And sadly, if you treat people badly, they respond uh, badly they assigned a uh, sort of a corporal sergeant few 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 soldiers to each camp but they couldn't stop them breaking out and they exacted a terrible terrible revenge uh, and this is harold harper battery sergeant major harold harper 426 battery every night we were called out by the local population because the russians that's the displaced person russians were going around looting and raping and god knows what we saw some terrible instances of rape i once had the job of taking a young girl who'd been raped to hospital i never found out if she lived or not but she was in a terrible state then we went into this barn and there was this young girl lying there the grandparents in the corner had obviously gone to her protection and they'd been shot. This is terrible. Uh, this is the horrible bit of war that sometimes people don't realise it's going on. As the months go on, it, it, they find them. It's ironic, but the South Otsasars find themselves. They fought so hard against fascism. Uh, they find themselves, and this is all unknowing, uh, complicit in what is now considered a war crime, as they obeyed orders. And uh, I'm not saying that the, the South Otsasars are war criminals. I'm saying that what they were ordered to do has now been perceived as a war crime. Uh, they didn't mean it. And, and Bob Folds explains what happened. And, and I want you to think about the complications of all this. Uh, you're going to be Bob Folds, aren't you, Gary? Captain Bob Folds, 426 Battery. Eventually, towards the end of the summer, orders came through that they were going to be repatriated In our innocence, we thought, well, they'll enjoy going home. We got them into lorries with not a great deal of trouble and started off going east towards the Russian zone. Then we couldn't understand why they kept on jumping off the lorries. We had to stop and fix bayonets, get them back on again. We got them to the frontier with a great deal of difficulty. They were terribly apprehensive about going home which was something we didn't understand because we knew nothing of the Russian internal setup at that time. 
we began to understand later on that forced repatriation was a terribly cruel and unkind thing. In our innocence, it hadn't occurred to us that we'd sent all these Russians back to a very uncertain future, to put it mildly. I think that explains what happened well. Uh, I'm not I'm not completely exonerating, but, but, but what I mean is it, it's one of those terrible things. Uh, when he says, uh, to put it mildly, uh, most of them were killed. Uh, they were shot as uh, collaborators by the Soviets. Uh, not a good thing. Let, uh, let's move on. Uh, slowly, the situation normalises. It, it's, it's amazing how quickly things settle down. Uh, and the, the soldiers are beginning to make real attempts to, uh, to, 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 to make friendly contacts with the uh, Germans. At one point, is, uh, it's like children... Uh, it, it's a mutual interest in sport. It sort of brings people together. And this is uh, Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper, 426 Battery. He says, after, after well, we can go back to Daft Axis, so, ah, after fraternisation ban was off, we decided to try and get on with local population. We organised this uh, football match. What, what we didn't understand, what we didn't realise, <laughs> was that this team was playing in the second division at German League. They'd reacted one or two 40-year-olds who'd been ex-professionals and they'd labelled it Stattholm versus the British Army. <laughs> and all it was was against our battery. We lost 7-0. The only bloke that came out of it with any sort of credit in our crowd was the poor old goalkeeper who let seven in but nevertheless made about 20 marvellous saves. And again, this reminds us of our own football teams, in particular my football team at the moment, who can't seem to score. The lovely a Liverpool, doing well. They're doing really well. How did they get on last night? Uh, they lost. Oh. <sighs> anyway, so the Germans also watch on <laughs> as, as as the soldiers try and introduce them to cricket. Now, I've often a, a sort of primitive person won't understand cricket. Um, you can see or me. As I said, a primitive person won't understand. A primitive, stupid, non-intellectual, sort of plebeian force for evil won't understand. Or me. Or, or Gary. Uh, anyway, this is Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper describing their attempts to bring cricket to the natives. He says, I bought first over. I'm a friend were batting. I'm no bowler. I just took two paces, brought my arm over, and the ball reared up and hit him on head. Off two paces! I thought it must have been a freak. <laughs> Next one, hit him on shoulder. So we decided to pack it in. The wicket weren't good enough. <laughs> the funny thing about it was the whole German village had turned out to see this freak match and they thought it was rather funny to see British shoulders knocking hell out of each other. <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, uh, how do, how, what's important? What happens to British soldiers if you don't amuse them, Gary? Well, they, they, if they get bored, they get into trouble. So um, they they introduce regular enter shows. Cinemas were set up, uh, running British films, and there were regular football matches organised in the leagues with uh, neighbouring units. And that went. I mean, I was in Germany in the early eighties, and that was continuing. Now, in, in, uh, the, the one thing we some of you might remember, Ken Giles, our resident intellectual. Uh, the uh, who was uh, a genius, and uh, he, uh, he 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 was now occupied. Uh, he was occupied as a, in a secret capacity as the narc. Narc meaning 
uh, writing a scandalous gossip column for the new regimental magazine, which was called, unimaginatively, The Acorn. And he said this. Oh, it was, it was called The Oakleaves. <laughs> I really must read things before I start. I'm going to read this one, Pete. Oh, go on then. You mentioned all my attributes there. Yes. So this is Lance Sergeant Ken Giles, 425 Battery. Regimental headquarters started the Royal newspaper, which they called the Oak Leaves. A German printing firm was it, it was from It was from London. I know that. A German printing film was engaged, <laughs> and the production was quite professional. I confess now for the first time in my life that I wrote... <laughs> The, a weekly the column. only bloody uh, accent that you could get right. <laughs> you under the pseudonym of the Narc. I tried my best to dig up any scandal about anybody, in a nice way, of course, printing little anecdotes of various members of the battery. On one occasion, Captain Elliot went on a trip into the Moselle, looking for wine for the officer's mess. I turned it into a kind of almost criminal-like journey and christened him Papa Elliot. I think these things were taken in good part, sometimes a little bit peaked, perhaps. Where did you hear of this? Perhaps my style of writing gave me away. Most people said, are you the narc? I always denied it. And he continued to deny it until the interview. He was... Until he moved to Nottingham. And got a Nottingham he accent. didn't move to Nottingham. He was living in somewhere near Eastbourne when I interviewed him. Anyway, uh, black market, black market. We've talked about black market before. It's normally on a small scale, uh, uh, but it's not a pretty business, is it? Um, um, I don't know. I've never liked black marketeers. Uh, it's not funny. It's not spivs. They'd exchange their rations to German civilians, gaining disproportionate values, for, uh, disproportionate uh, value, goods and things. So watches, jewelry, silverware, clocks, various heirlooms. Uh, well, some of them traded for sexual favours as well, Pete. Let's be honest about yeah. this. And that's capitalised on desperation, isn't it? Um, you don't get a lot of that in oral history. And I, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying that the South of Tazars did a lot of this kind of thing. I'm just saying it did happen. Um, others formed genuine, if you like, relationships with under with German women. Although I always wonder why. <laughs> why the women were so keen for a relationship. With, uh, uh, but at least it offers an escape, doesn't it? It does. The end comes, it's all a bit of an anticlimax. I, I, when I was writing my book, At Close Range, which is now available in all good, all good internets, because, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> it, um, it, um, there's always an anticlimax in any unit history, because in, in the end, it all comes to an end, they all go back to civilian life. Um, and uh, men are posted away gradually to other units. They're posted back home. Uh, and best of all, of course, they're demobbed. And this is Battery Sergeant Major Harold Harper. Uh, the first chapter being demobbed, we had a party, and it turned out disastrous. <laughs> we were drinking German schnapps. Ah, it's durable stuff. It wasn't matured. <laughs> we were getting it from local still. We had, we had at the foot of the stairs, <laughs> got the foot of the stairs, I love that expression, uh, a marble statue of a girl and a couple of sergeants decided they'd put this statue in t- commanding officer's bed. It was only about two foot high, but when they tried to take it off the pedestal, then they realised how heavy it was and it crashed down. <laughs> the chapel was about to be, to be, to be demobilised. He was underneath. <laughs> he broke all his teeth and his demob got pulled. Like six weeks. 
Oh, that reminds me of someone called Gary Bain and uh, and his his friend Mark Jackson. They were the similar sort of complete spanners. Um, anyway, um, de- how are they de- how are they demobilised, uh, Gary? Well, they, they, they'd learned from the, the the Great War when things had not gone particularly particularly well, so they were demobilised in age groups, which that pretty much reflected how they'd volunteered or been called up. So uh, it was a conscious effort to avoid the unfairness that happened after the Great War. Did it succeed, you reckon? Largely, yeah. Uh, I mean, there would be exceptions, but I think uh, it did. And um, uh, Troop Sergeant Major Albert Swinton says, the various groups went off in numbers. We'd lost two blokes on this group and four blokes on that group. If any of my blokes were going away, I always made a point of grabbing a couple of bottles out of the sergeant's mess and going down to the men's billets, get the blokes who were being demobbed and their particular friends, and we'd all sit down and have a drink. It got a bit hectic, I must say. I have no idea where that accent was from. <laughs> um, so, so uh, most of the original, you know, the people we, that, that that we had in our very first episode when they were mobilised, they're, they're, they're almost all back home by the time of the regimental adjutant. Now, that's Captain Ian Sinclair, who was uh, just a, a sergeant. Well, he was a a troop, uh, a gunner at the start, then a sergeant. He gets the notes of the official disbandment of the South Lots of Sars on 28th of February 1946. Uh, the, the, the few who are still serving are dispersed around all, of the, uh, all the artillery regiments all round in Germany. The South Lots of Sars were no more. Uh, no, home. What does that mean? What did it mean? What does it mean, Gary? It means the place you live, Pete. I think it means everything. I think it means the hopes, the dreams. Uh, there's an emotional investment of six long, painful years of fixating, idealising it, isn't it? Uh, can you imagine? And it means the place where you live, Pete. <laughs> Bursting shells, hissing bullets, rolling tanks. Those are all what, things. When they got home. <laughs> <laughs> when they met their wife. <laughs> um... Uh, six years of physical punishment, terrible wounds, the aches, the injuries, the pain, the hunger, the endless thirst. This is beginning to sound more and more like home. Uh, the mo- Hang on. The mortifying humiliations, the dysentery, the postulating sores. Uh, yeah, I think they actually mean the war. The piles, the scabies, the fleas. This is This is Gary's home life. Made flesh. Yeah, don't forget, for some, this is this is um, you know, liberty following years as as prisoners of war. Oh, you mean the ones who were captured at night? Yeah, yeah, it's not just it's not just those that came home from Germany; those that were captured. So it's six years. You've been, you've seen people you know, your friends killed. You could have been killed at any moment. Six years of being separated from your families. And remember, there's bombing going on in London, in in Nottingham, in, in, in not a lot in Nottingham, but there's still bombing. Uh, they might be that their their families would be killed while they were away. And then at last, it's all over. Uh, would there be a, a, a big a big civic reception like after the Iraq War or? Falklands? No, because they came back in dribs and drabs. As we mentioned, they were released in age groups, so um, there, there was no mass return, uh, so there was no opportunity for a big civic reception. So all a bit of an anticlimax again, isn't it? it uh, no, 
There's no common response to, to war, I don't think, but there's no common response to getting back to civilian life. I think, do you think people took seriously politicians' promises? Well, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, politicians then, as now, were over-promising. Uh, you know, they, they realised, the men realised whatever the promises were, they they there were far too many people returning from the armed services to, to allow any special care to be taken of them. Yeah, you know, they get their old jobs back, though. That that was uh, that was something that the new Labour government was prioritising, as well as house building. But but uh, was the economy in good shape? No, no, the country was was in effect bankrupt, wasn't it? So no homes fit for he- heroes, or not for a, a while. Uh, no brave new world, eh? No brave new no. world. Um, they're also losing something. Now, you were in the army. What, 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 what did you most miss when you left the army? And you hadn't been to war. Custard. I missed the cookhouse custard. Mm-hmm. That and comradeship. You miss your mates. You miss your mates. That That's it. Uh, and, and they'd fought alongside them. They'd got incredible bond. Uh, um, and... I'm not sure. I mean, for you, you probably could recreate, but for others, I mean, you've got that bond of comradeship you formed with me, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's part of the problem. It's a, it's a special bond, and and it probably was never fully understood by the civilians. No. And this is Harold Harper. Uh, he's now a civilian. And he said, one always thought the day you got demobbed was going to be fantastic. Fantastic! You jumped for joy as I left all the chaps behind who I'd been with. Some, for many years, there was a touch of sadness. Some, one, one felt quite cut off from something that had been part of your life. And uh, there's another thing about it. Uh, how had they gone off to war? Well, they were, they were boys, weren't they? A lot of them. They were very, very young and, and now they're back as men. Yeah, because six years, I mean, I'm in my 60s. Six years, I'd still be in my 60s. <laughs> I'm getting old, Gary. <laughs> but it's, it passes in a blink of the eye, doesn't it? Years now, a year is nothing. Six years is now. But when you're 20 to 26, it's it's your life, isn't it? I mean, it, just a year is everything. You're 18 to 19, you're 19 to 20. That's a long, long time. And... And you can never really get it back. And you're going to be George Pearson, who, who'd been with the South Hussars. He's in the early episodes. He was a great character. But then he left to become an officer uh, after, after Tobruk. Uh, you're going to be him. So t- tell us what, what George Pearson says, Gary. I went to war at 20 years of age and came back at 25. Those of us that had been NCOs and then officers... There had never been a time within those five or six years where you'd not got responsibilities to other people, looking after other people. What should have been your youthful years of most fun, your early 20s, they'd been passed and you'd always had responsibilities. I won't say you didn't enjoy yourself. You did, of course. But your most youthful years have been taken away from you. And they've also changed as men, haven't they? Uh, it, it, 
so you send off a polite young boy from uh and he's been exposed to not only the dreadful things of war but the dreadful things of their of, of military life just the crudities uh, uh they'd lost some of their best friends in, in a split second just gone just one minute they're there then minute, and they've not really had a chance to grieve and and you're going to be jack sykes now aren't you and and, and what does he say I'd had a fairly sheltered sort of life before I went into the army. I've lived with my grandma, pretty spoilt, never drank, smoked. I went out with young ladies. I learnt a few facts of life while I was in the army, and that hardened me up, made me much more self-confident, and taught me how to get on with people. And I think uh, a point about people, uh, it's noticeable... For instance, in this COVID epidemic, it's hitting the young heart in some, not illness-wise, but they're losing a year of their life from 18 to 19. My daughters are really suffering from, from losing all that time ago at the pub and running around in circles that we enjoyed, Gary. And uh, for us, we're just old buggers. We'd hardly be out more than once or twice a week anyway. Anyway, uh, now they're just ordinary civilians, all these men. All these men have been to war. And do you think they're special? No, no, I mean, you've got to remember that the people on the home front had suffered their own privations as well. You know, they'd risked death from bombs and, and later in the war from the V weapons. They'd worked long shifts in the coal mines or munitions factories. They too, they'd had to live on restricted rations. So many of them didn't have uh, the empathy to understand the extra mile, if you like, that the uh, the soldiers had gone when they were at the front. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's that's really true. So soldiers, there's millions of them for a start, but then there's millions of civilians who've suffered and have gone through hell. Now, Ted Whittaker, let's do some examples here. Sorry, I've just banged the microphone. Ted Whittaker, uh, he's demobilised and he comes back after being a POW. Now, you remember Ted, he was captured at Knightsbridge. So he'd had uh, another three years, four years, can't work it out as a POW, and uh, he went to see about getting his old job back as a clerk at a light engineering factory. And this is appalling what happens to Ted. He was a lovely man. He said this. Uh, he's from Leicester, or he was when I interviewed him, so I'm just going to speak to it. I'm not going to use an accent. I was not exactly made welcome. The chap who'd taken charge came to see me. The first thing he said was, Can't spare long. We're ever so busy. You've no idea what it's been like while you've been away. I thought, this is really promising. <laughs> a friend of mine rang me up and said, this job they put you on, they're just going to give you it. Uh, it's the minimum they're required to do. It's sorted out stuff we've got in stock from government contracts. And when that's finished, you're finished. I think they had to take you on for a year. I mean, they had no intention of honouring the pledge for uh, getting your job back for good. Uh, uh, in the end, Whitaker doesn't pursue that. He goes to a government-sponsored business studies course and ends up uh, pursuing a career as a, a clerk with Nottingham City Treasurer's Department. So he gets a proper job. He lived in Leicester when I uh, when I interviewed him. He was a cracking bloke. Um, do you think your achievements in the army, say if you'd been a gunner and you'd risen to be uh, a troop sergeant major, do you think that matters when you go back home, Gary? No, it's uh, it's irrelevant. And uh, in the case of Albert Swinton, he returned to his old job at the Players' Cigarette Factory, and he says, "No bother, no bother at all. As far as I was concerned, the war was finished, and I was civilian. And the fact that I'd been a sergeant major didn't count for anything. Our warrant officer, Danny Lamb, he worked at Players. He was only on a machine, same as me. 
My machine was at the end of the row, nearest the window. I used to stand there with these two windows open and my head stuck out. The number of times the foreman came along and caught me was nobody's business. Having spent the last six years living in a hole in the ground and to then get stuck in an air-conditioned factory, it didn't go down very well. Now, he was a great bloke. He stuck it out for about a year. Then he just looked for something that gave him an outdoor life. He, he, he was ruined for indoor work, if you like. Uh, he, he was married with a family, so he couldn't rejoin the army. Uh, this is something that constantly comes back. The, the irregular army isn't a job for a married man. If you've already been away for six years as well. So instead he became a policeman. And, that's, that's, uh, and he had a good career in the police. One of our favourites. Who's, uh, who's the person who most... One of the people who most stuck out for you in, in these, uh, these podcasts? Well, I don't think it's just me. I mean, from the feedback we've been getting, Ray Ellis uh, is, is very um, popular. He speaks well. Um, some of his quotes are very funny, in fact. And uh, before the war, he didn't have any sort of settled job. He'd been working as a junior clerk, a training engineer and a furniture salesman. So when he comes back from uh, a, a return from a German POW camp. So he was taken at Knightsbridge as well. So that's. Yeah. Um, it, it initially looks like he he sort of fall apart. He uh, he'd become very bitter and, and disillusioned. And uh, he went absent without leave from the army. Did you ever do that? (laughs) uh, I'm taking the fifth. Uh, However, he got over the worst of his depression and he began to look for something worthwhile to do with his life. And eventually he trained under, again, under the government uh, scheme, uh, the emergency teacher training scheme. Became a a teacher. Now, that's two people have been helped by government schemes. So the government isn't in sensitive brute force. It's trying. It's just the scale of the problem. Individuals get caught in the cracks, don't they? Anyway, how does how does uh, Ray react to uh, teacher training? I was overjoyed. I really was thrilled to think that now, instead of spending my life killing, I was going to be able to do some good with things I loved, children. I really did. It wasn't a phony thing. It wasn't silly. I was a very serious-minded person, and I really was sincere about wanting to do good and be good to children. I got through the hatred and was coming through to a more positive way of thought and thinking of what I could do. I became a teacher. He, he, he really does well at that and he becomes a really popular headmaster, uh, which is a rare thing. Um, well, he, uh, he was a Nottingham lad, but by the time I interviewed him, he was in Lincoln. He lived right at the top of that hill. Uh, <laughs> you know the big hill in Lincoln? Oh, sorry. Uh, right at the top of there he was. And uh, he was one of the very few that I actually went for a drink with in the evening. He was such a great bloke. And he, just to talk with him, it seems amazing to have that chance to uh, talk to someone as amazing as him. Um, do you think war veterans, how do you think they feel about other people who hadn't gone to war? Um, it's, it's, it's difficult for them not to look down on people that hadn't gone through the experience. Even if they'd had genuine reasons? I mean, well, some, some people are physically incapable or they're in uh, reserved occupations, aren't they? Yeah, but they, they just looked... It, it's difficult, Pete. They, they've not experienced what those men had experienced and, and it's very difficult for them not to consider that. And, they, and they've lost six years <coughs> of their life, you know. Well, what does that mean in practice, then? Well, people that had stayed behind had got on, 
you know, so uh, they they hadn't stood still in their careers, for example. And sometimes this led to to conflicted emotions. And and there's a quote from Charles Ward, which I'm going to read. And he says, the beneficial effect was that when you came back, it sounds smug, but you could hold your head high. People, particularly accountants who had managed to stay at home, it sounds a bit childish now, but you did feel you'd done your bit. You were resentful that you'd lost six years against people who were competing with you and you'd got to catch up six years, which is quite a long time in an accountant's life. It's the whole training period and it's a long, long time. <clears throat> now, we said earlier, there's as many, there's lots of different ways of reacting to 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 coming out of the forces. And this is uh, Dennis Middleton. Now, he was a real character, a humorist, if you like. And he said this. Mentally, I gained a great deal in self-confidence. I'd acquired the philosophy not to bother about what everybody else thinks. You know that expression, uh, you can't do that, or you can't wear that, or what will people think? I couldn't care less what people will think. And that was what, that's a positive, he, he was a positive chap and he came through it and he felt he'd overcome it, he, he, he gained from the war, if you like, his war experiences. But uh, there's something that lurks, something else that lurks for a lot of people. What's that, Gary? Yeah, I mean, it's what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, although you certainly would, and I know others would argue that the disorder was an entirely natural reaction to the stresses that they'd had to endure. Yeah, I remember Ali saying that, and it, it struck a. He said, "This is just—it's not a disorder. It's—it's <laughs> it's absolutely natural." Um, and and the example we're going to use here is a chap called Harry Day, and a lot of them had coped well in the fighting. They coped well as POWs, but they had terrible problems when they got home. And Harry Day explained he'd been the medical order. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember. Remember he Harry. had the bloke. He was on his knee, and he had the bloke had his head yeah. shot off. Yeah. Not nice. Well, what does Harry say? It was like taking a splint off a fracture. While the splint was on, while you were in stations of stress and fear, you were all right. You could combat it because you'd become used to combating it. When you got home, the splint fell off. I could not go into a public house on my own. A train letting off steam was like a bomb and I would drop to the ground in those early days. For years, that is how we kept ourselves alive. It wore off altogether. It took about a year. My local doctor said, as much sport as you can manage. That was great. I loved sport. And, it, you know, he did He did get better. Now, Ted Holmes, uh, he, he reckoned he got more and more nervous as the war went on. He, he just found the stress building up and everything he survived seemed to build up the mental pressure. Uh, and it... It carried on into his civilian life, and Ted became a grave digger at Hasland Church. And I visited that grave. His house was just along from it. He was, as you know, he was one of my favourites. But I'm going to do him in a Chesterfield accent because, because I can, because I'm from Chesterfield myself, or Luton, or, or, or Luton, or Stanhope, or Liverpool, or East Finchley, one of them. I think you got more nervous. It was what I used to call bomb happy. If you heard an aeroplane coming, you were looking round, and sometimes if there was a noise sounding like a bomb, you'd drop on the floor. Even today, after all these years, if a low flying plane comes over, I'm nearly flat down on the floor. I can't help it. It's just a reaction. And that, that I interviewed him in the, the, the 
late 80s or early 90s. Uh, that makes you think, doesn't it? It's really ingrained. Because if you didn't get flat on the floor, you'd be dead. And it's an ingrained wartime reaction. And you can't suppress it afterwards. And you're going to be Ernie Hurry now. Um, and uh, he lived in Nottingham, a great blog. What does he say? I still suffer from bad nerves. I was always listening for things happening. I've had that all the way through. Any movements, wherever I went, approaching a house or anywhere, I'd be always listening and ready to jump at the first sign of anything. It never leaves you. You've still got that intuition. Any sound, you jump. Sometimes I'd be working and some of the people, they'd drop something behind me for a joke. I'd jump a mile, startled, and they'd think it was funny. I still have it today. It's a thing I live with. And you know damn well, Gary, that if you'd been working with that bloke, you'd have dropped something behind him. Because that's what that's what humour is. It's cruel at times. And I, I, f- I feel so sorry for Ernie Harry. And, um, but I don't blame the blacks dropping things behind him because that's just what human nature's like. It's not a weakness, is it, Gary? It's not a weakness. Um, we've, Harold Harper's been with us all the way through these podcasts. What would you, how would you describe Harold Harper as a, as a soldier? I would say he was the obverse of you. He was, he was a superb, competent soldier. Did and, his job, did it well. And what happens when the pressure's released? Well, I, I'm going to read this quote from Harold. I'm not going to use a, an, an accent because I find this quite sad. I was a type of soldier that went in to do a job and having done the job, was quite happy to get back to civilian life. I went back to Boots Accounting Department. I went in as a boy and I came out as very much a man. I I was very worn out. The stress of getting back into civilian life because you realise how much you'd lost when you pitted yourselves against the blokes at work who hadn't left the company. They knew everything that was going off and you didn't. There was a sign of Chesterfield accent going off. Ah, what's going off? (laughs) The, The reaction set in after I got home. You tensed yourself up during the war, and now you weren't so tense. The thing was backfiring on you. I didn't have a nervous breakdown, but I was close to it. I was scared to cross the road. This is Harold Harper, scared to cross the road. Scared to sit on the top of a double-decker bus. I want to point out, this is Harold Harper, Battery Sergeant Major. That started about a year after I was demobbed. My father was very blunt, and he told me in no uncertain manner what to do. And this is not advice for those suffering from depression or mental problems. <laughs> but it worked for Harold. Pull yourself together! <laughs> when the Terri- Territorial Army reformed in 1947, I had a fair amount of persuasion to join, but I wouldn't. I just didn't feel as I wanted to get involved again. I suppose war weariness and the nerve had gone a little bit. Brave man... Brave, man, brave enough to admit that he wasn't up to it anymore, that he'd, he'd been to the well once too often. It, it was running dry, you know. Uh, the next one is Frank Penlington. Um, now, Frank was an unusual character. He was Welsh, uh, so I've got to try, haven't I? <laughs> and um, indirectly, it, this sums up, when a man comes back from the war, is it only him, Gary, that suffers? No, no, his wife and children will, his family. will have to cope with it as well, yeah. And this is what Frank said. The war wasn't a reality, was it? <laughs> After the war, you you come out to reality. And I've never accepted that. 
Although I say it myself, I've never been normal since I... Oh, God, wait I've never been normal since I left the army. Uh, and my wife will tell you. <laughs> yeah, apart from the accent, that could have been you talking about you there, really, couldn't yeah, you? You mean the bit about Polly telling me I'm not Polly normal? Polly would definitely tell you you're not normal, yeah. Yeah, well, I'd, <laughs> I'd beg to differ. Uh, now... We're getting more and more serious in the sensory approach. Uh, there's something else. It's not only mental problems that people have. It's not a problem. It's mental, just the effects. Uh, there's physical. Some of them have been badly wounded uh, and they have to put up with this. Now, the next one's going to be Bobby Feekins. You remember Bobby? He's the one who was uh, in the armoured car when Jerry Birkin had, had a shell go right through his stomach. He's the one who uh, had injured legs from that. And he's the one who had the uh, the heads and corpses of the headless signalers in the back of the car, armoured car with him. And he's still suffering from the physical effects when I interviewed him 50 years later. Now, this chap's from London, so I'm expecting a, a good London accent from you, but not too silly. Um, sometimes you get better from an army disability, don't you? But what happens when you get old? It comes back, doesn't it? it yeah, comes... it does. And by the time uh, Bobby he... Thinking... Sorry, go on. By the time he was in his 80s, when I saw him, he could hardly walk. Anyway, you tell us what he says. Uh, Bobby Feekins. I received a disability pension of 20% for my legs. I still limped, and in those days, somebody that limped was known as Gimpy. I was determined to get rid of the limp. I struggled and struggled, and the pain was pretty bad, but I eventually did. It took me 18 months to get rid of the limp. I hadn't got a job to go to, no counselling or training whatsoever. I was no different from anybody else. We were all returning from overseas, the jobs having been done by young women in our absence that had to be scaled down to allow those coming home to take jobs. We gradually got back on our feet. I'd always been very interested in motor cars and I got a job with a second-hand car company. I'd become of a nervous disposition and I always felt that I was unequal to an awful lot of people. That has never left me. I always feel that I should have done an awful lot more with my life. And that, 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 a life, not ru- not so much ruined, but a, a sense of lost, a lost potential, a lost, just, he was a wonderful old boy. He lived in Harrow uh, when I interviewed him uh, and a uh, fantastic bloke. Um, do you think do you think our country did enough for uh, the veterans and their families in the years after the war? Do you think they tried? I think they tried, but I think it's it's you know the, the men themselves have made the point about the millions of people that were returning to the to the country from war service, and and arguably it was impossible for them to do what they were trying to do, but they did need to do a little more. People, I mean that's that's a very very sad situation that Bobby Feekins found himself in where he wasn't getting any support. He was invalided out of the army. You know, uh, he had terrible wounds. And the fact that he saw himself as, as unequal to others, uh, I mean, it's it's terrible, terrible that he put himself in a situation. And you could have helped with men like him. I, I expect that our country looks after its veterans, a much less number of veterans from Iraq and, uh, and the Falklands. Gary, is that the case, do you think? 
I, I'm not qualified to to comment on that, Pete. The, the people that I know say otherwise. Yeah, and I think so as well. But it's it's a it's a country's duty to look after its serving veterans af, after they've served. Um, now, there's there many of the men I interviewed. Um, they, they they told me that before I went to see them, and I want you to picture a halfwit turning up at somebody's house. I expect you are picturing that. They told me that in the nights before recording ant sessions and afterwards they had terrible nightmares um it's, what about you <laughs> no about their war service gary oh. it awakened the demons um uh do you know that that one last act of courage they were still willing to record their memories why do you think they wanted to record their memories why why well i think they wanted to uh, leave something for others, uh, to, so that uh, they leave something to the posterity, for want of a better word, so that people learn from their experiences. What it was and like. Also to, yeah, and also to just share that, you know, it's not just the experiences of the war, but to try and share their feelings of comradeship, comradeship even, and the friends that they made and the respect that they held people in. That all comes across in the interviews. It's not just the horror of the war. And most of all, I think, to remember the and pay tribute to the friends that died too soon. And at the time, they might have thought, oh, well, we're all going to get killed soon. But then you, when you've lived another 70 years, you think, or 60 or 70 years, you think, oh, poor old John or Jack, dead in 1940, 42. And, and, and here's me in 2000-whatever. And, and they're, 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 they must feel terrible. And those friends are left buried in a far. It, it's a as the thing in some far off, far off fields. Um, um, now that most of the South Lutzers I interviewed are dead, if not all of them, I think they all are. Uh, I, I, I'd like, um, and this isn't a joke. I'd just like to pay a personal homage to them to to to, to just to say thank you for for all they did. They were ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And uh, you're going to read the last quote, and we won't bother with the accent, I think, just, just to give us a feel. This is Reg Cutter from, uh, from Newcastle, and it's the last words for this podcast in, in, uh, until we say bye-bye, of course. We all got on very well. We were all just brothers in arms, the whole lot of us. Just brothers in arms. I think that's wonderful. And uh, thank you, Gary, for, for being with me during this journey can't stay serious yeah i'd like I, to i can't uh, stay serious for long <laughs> i'd like to thank you for introducing me to the the men of the south not Cesars. uh you know as you know my interest is not in the uh, the second world war um so i'd like to thank you for that and i think others would like to thank you as well i think that along the journey we've come to know people like ray ellis particularly well albert um, swinton albert swinton frank pennington even you know th- these are names that are now uh meaning something to us that perhaps they didn't before so thank you pete and i will at the end of this say that if you've enjoyed these podcasts as i have um then you should get out there and purchase at close range because it is a fantastic uh book and it's a testament to these men thank you gary you're you're my new favorite and thank you most of all to the south of cheers cheers pete Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it